Welcome to The How, Channeling Water Solutions, a podcast from W12 Plus Programs. The How focuses on water solutions and the people behind them from around the world. We are excited to bring to you this season a series of conversations, each with two guests with two different viewpoints on some of the most pressing water challenges facing the world today. From W12 Plus Programs, I'm your host, Judy Jane. I will be joined by my co-host, Dakota Victoria Splichilova, in one moment. In this episode, Mexico City-based architect and urban designer Loretta Castro-Ruguera and award-winning journalist Erica Guys share what a livable city means to them. Loretta is the co-founder of the architecture firm Taie Capital. She focuses on the design of public spaces capable of managing water through soft infrastructure. Erica is an independent journalist and author of the book Water Always Wins, Thriving in an Age of Drought and Deluge. From Mexico City to Beijing to Chennai, cities are facing the challenges of growing populations and increasing water and climate stress. What do these cities have in common? How can urban planners reconnect residents with their natural environments? And what is the slow water movement? Without further ado, here are Loretta and Erica. So welcome, Erica, Loretta. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yes. Thank you. Welcome. Loretta, I want to start by talking about how the cities we live in and know of today were originally designed and built. So, for example, in Mexico City, Loretta, can you tell us a bit about the history of the city and how that relates to water and climate problems we see today? Yeah, sure. Well, Mexico City was or has been the basin of Mexico has been inhabited for so many years, uh, 30,000 years almost. But I think we can start talking about uh, history of water ever since the first uh, um, inhabitants established in the center of the lake. So that was in 1325, and these were the Mexicas. And then the city started growing over the lake. The first city was a city that somehow had a, a very good relationship with water, even though it, it was always flooding because the, the basin is characterized for being closed, which means that water accumulates and when there is, uh, during the rainy season, the level of water rises. So it was always flooded, but somehow the system um, of these chinampas and canals permitted water to be evacuated uh, quite fast. But then after the Spanish conquest, the entire design of the city was changed and it was uh, substituted by a renaissantist system agreed with paved streets and squares and that has become a, a large problem uh, because the city is the capital city of the country it's the largest city and the floods continued so what the decision that was taken was to open the basin to artificially open the basin to somehow force water to evacuate and ever since we have been in a cycle of opening um, holes to the basin, letting water go, and growing the city in the spaces that are left dry, supposedly. However, the, the soil is still the soil of a lake, so it's, uh, it accumulates rain, it accumulates water. Um, and the, the system has grown to a dimension in which we have no more lake, Imagine it, it was a 9,600 square kilometer lake, and today we have less than 50 kilometers of water, square kilometers of water. So we have a 22 million inhabitant city on top of a lake 
that is constantly being drained. Every day we, we pour 54 cubic meters of water out of the basin. And we are always struggling with the liquid. In, during the dry season, we suffer from scarcity because 22 million inhabitants drink water from the aquifer. We have even uh, had to import water from other basins. And during the rainy season, water accumulates in the center of the basin and it causes floods all around the city. Thank you for that, Loretta. I think that, as you say, it's so interesting how Mexico City was a place that used to ha you know, have a lot of water and have a lot of water abundance. And now that there is this imbalance that, um, you know, people are dealing with during the floods, uh, during the, with the flooding and during the uh, dry season. So with that said, I'm wondering, you know, when you think about Mexico City, when you think about, you know, um, you know, a city where the majority of the population is going to live in urban areas in the near future, what does a livable city mean to you? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Yeah, well, I, even though it's like um, somehow a desperate or a, a hopeless view of the city. Like when you start analyzing the water problem in Mexico City, there's a point in which you think there's no way out and we're gonna all have to evacuate because there's no more water. But we we think, and I say we because we're a team of people uh, that put a lot of effort on doing this every day. We think that there's hope and, and that there are still ways in which we can start to restructure or reweave that relationship with water, not as a tense relationship, which is the way in which we have had um, it during uh, for the last 500 years, but instead really making it a, a more amiable and a more um, communicative way of, of relating to water. And that is bringing the image of water again to the city, not ornamental water, which is how we have done it also in other countries around the world, but as a way in which we can understand the cycle of water through the way in which water appears in the city. So we, we aim to design and to create public spaces that are able to act as infrastructures, not only spaces for recreation and sports or, or walks or even greenery, but spaces that are also serving the city in terms of how water is managed. So places that can harvest rainwater, that can hold runoff, that can treat uh, sewage water, that can filter um, water both from runoff and from the rain, and that are able to later distribute it around the buildings and houses that lie um, close to those public spaces. So we think that somehow dispersing these uh, traditional infrastructure systems, which are are very uh, concentrated and are always depending of someone pulling the the brake or pushing the button we think that it's it's a strategy that has to do much more with dispersion and with people managing their own public spaces as a way to make the entire city an infrastructure that but a soft infrastructure, not one depending on machines or on pumps and pipes, but rather on how the public space is able to hold water and to somehow let water go when it's needed. 
That's really great. That really um, answers what my next question was going to be about in terms of your approach and the strategies you use for managing water. And I know you do this work through your architecture firm, Taller Capital, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you've been described as a water-sensitive urban designer, which is an approach similar to nature-based solutions, um, green infrastructure, and low-impact yeah. development. Um, and so I want to ask you something that um, we, hadn't, we hadn't talked about before, actually. If you could just tell us a little bit about why you started Taller Capital um, in the beginning. Sure. So the studio started as an architecture studio, me and my partner working on architectural projects and housing projects mainly. And parallel to that, we kept this um, research area of the studio working on water. And that was because we, we received a grant back in 2010 to travel around cities in the world that have been designed through water meaning uh, cities that were laid upon marshlands such as Venice or Suzhou in China, or other cities that, uh, that have been built on hillsides, for example, that have a lot of runoff. So we visited several uh, cities around the world and we started putting together a glossary of what water images, let's say, or of, or of how um, humans have been able to deal with water along history. Um, in a physical way. So um, with that in our background, somehow we start, We wanted to start making proposals for Mexico City. And we had a very nice chance through Centro Mario Molina, which is a research center in Mexico, to research on how water was managed specifically in Mexico City, detecting like the history and the current issues uh, that, that happened regarding floods, regarding uh, sewage management and scarcity. So through that research, we were able to put together a first strategy for better managing water in the city that had to do with these public spaces, but also with larger unbuilt on, on areas around the city. So somehow this idea that's all around the world, the green and blue belt, but also with the internal acupunctural strategies. And all this comes from several um, interviews and visits we did in many, con in many cities around the world. So it's pulling the ideas that humans have been um, producing along history in order to try to configure a new system for the city. And with that research, uh, there was a point, uh, a moment in time in which we were able to put the first project to, to somehow present the first project to the authorities. It was a very ambitious project. It's called Parque La Quebradora, which wanted to treat water, to harvest water, to uh, bring runoff and filter runoff. And it was the first uh, sort of park in the city and it was hard to build it to be built. It, it took like five years of construction, and not all of it was put together. But somehow it worked as the first um, approach to the to projects of the sort. And since that park, we have been able to build other four, much more accurate and let's say um, somehow uh, cleaning the amount of strategies we need to to put in each one and with very very good results so we think it's a, a work that in on, on one side it's gaining more people that are convinced of it but it's also gaining other designers to start uh, designing in that way and i think it's it's the only 
a way in which we can build this parallel system, this parallel water management system, which we are not trying to suppress the other one. We think they need to work, as I said before, parallel. Thank you so much. Um, I think Dakota, uh, I think we'll turn to you and Erica for um, you know the next part of our of our conversation. Hi, Erica. Uh, Dakota here. So just to take a step back, um, we've just learned a lot of Loretta's work and her movements around water in the context of Mexico City and also thinking more broadly. And so I'd like to start with you uh, a question to kind of scale back a little bit. Um, so you're a journalist and you're also an author. You've written the book Water Always Wins. I wonder if we could just take a step back and actually ask you a question about what is your relationship with water? My personal relationship with yeah. water? <laughs> uh, okay, I grew up in California uh, where water is a fairly widespread obsession uh, because our natural climate cycles between drought and heavier rains uh, and climate change is making those cycles more intense. Um, however, one of the points I make in my book is that it's not just climate change that's causing these water disasters. A lot of it does have to do with our development choices, and that is urban sprawl, like Loretta was talking about, um, industrial agriculture, and even the very kind of concrete control-oriented way that we try to manage water. Thank you for that. So. Um, this touches on this next point. So Erica, for you, what does it mean um, to you when you hear the terms or concept, a livable city? What does it look like and what does it feel like based off of what you just shared? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there are many aspects to a livable city, um, uh, such as being able to walk and bike places and having all of the things that you need in your own community, uh, sort of a neighborhood feel scale. But when it comes to water, um, definitely um, I agree with Loretta with many of the, the themes that she was talking about. Um, you know, we have made our cities very impermeable. Um, one kind of mind blowing statistic is that um, just since 1992, the land area covered by pavement in our cities has doubled around the world. And so, you know, we've seen a big increase in urban flooding and it's because the water cannot soak into the ground. It just runs off quickly. Um, and so, you know, people respond to that by trying to get it out of the city as quickly as possible. Uh, but then that means that we don't have that water uh, later when we need it uh, during the dry season. Um, a really good example of that is uh, a city I focused on in my book, Chennai, India, which made international headlines a few years ago because it ran out of water. Uh, in fact, Chennai runs out of water almost every summer, um, but it actually receives one and a half times the amount of water that it consumes via rainfall during the monsoon, but it doesn't hold on to that water. Um, it's worried about flooding, so it whisks it away. And then later it thinks about pumping groundwater or desalinization. Um, and these are problems that we find around the world, like Loretta was talking about in, in Mexico City. So a sustainable city finds 
many, many ways for water to move into the ground. Um, you know, another point I make in my book is the importance of the relationship between surface water and groundwater. So um, in California, people have long pumped groundwater uh, as a major source of water. And, and that happens in many places around the world. It happens in Mexico City, I know. Um, and people have tended to think of that as like extra water when surface water runs low. But in fact, groundwater and surface water are connected. Um, when surface water runs high, it filters down and refills groundwater. And when groundwater is um, a healthy system, it is actually supplying streams, rivers, and wetlands from below. So like in the Western United States, we tend to think of streams as seasonal, running only during the winter. But in fact, historically, a lot of these streams ran year round because they were supplied by groundwater. So that's why it's so important to find ways to be able to move water into the city. And there are a lot of different ways to do that. And some of those are more engineered than others. I'm a big advocate of finding places to try to make those systems as natural as possible. For example, reclaiming floodplains that can act as parks, um, but also can absorb water or restoring wetlands. Um, one important point that Loretta made was that these solutions are distributed. So, um, you know, we have gotten used to this very centralized water management. And, you know, there are important things that those systems do, like treating sewage and providing us with clean drinking water. Um, but if you think about the, the area uh, that we have disrupted with our development, another stat, um, humans have uh, destroyed as much as 87% of the world's wetlands. Um, so if you think of that scale, you understand why you need small places all along water's path throughout its watershed for it to reclaim its slow phases and, and move underground. And another important thing Loretta said was about the community component. So if you have a really distributed system like that, people are going to come into contact with it much more than in a centralized system where you've got it behind a fence and the experts are handling it. And so um, I found communities around the world, uh, like in Peru and Kenya, where um, regular people were managing their own slow water solutions and also collaborating with their neighbors and, and taking care of that system and maintaining the resource. And I, I think it's, it's really a cultural change. You know, in the dominant culture, we have come to view water as either a commodity or a threat. And that's all within the lens of like human needs and desires. But when we approach water that way, we're ignoring the complex systems, the relationships that water has with soil and underground microbes, beavers, people. And those systems do a lot to keep those, uh, to keep the water supply healthy and available for us. And so when we have these very single focus um, problem solving approaches, we destroy these systems and that causes a lot of the problems that we're experiencing. So the slow water movement, green infrastructure, low impact design, all of these names are really about asking what does water want and how can we find space for water and collaborate with water throughout its path? Thank you so much. You answered a lot of my questions. Um, uh, how about let's move towards, um, maybe could you tell us 
what in the context you've mentioned the slow water movement uh, and you've written many articles on it would you be able to provide um, a definition perhaps or a conceptual basis for what is the slow water movement sure yeah so through our development um, we have eradicated many of water's slow phases so that would be wetlands floodplains mountain meadows forests and these are places where water slows and is able to move underground and have that relationship um, with the underground and so the slow water movement is really about trying to protect these areas that remain restore them where possible or mimic them to some degree to allow that water to infiltrate um, slow water solutions are ideally local you know in modern development, we have a tendency to want to bring water from other places. But in fact, um, there's a field called sociohydrology that has found that um, that really just makes more people uh, vulnerable to water scarcity because it increases development in an area that doesn't really have enough water for that. It's very similar to the idea of, um, you know, you have gridlock on the freeway, so you expand the lanes and then that just attracts more traffic. Um, slow water projects are environmentally just. So dams and diversions on uh, rivers around the world have brought water to 20% of the world's population, but decreased water availability to 24% of the world's population. Similarly, levees that are built to protect one community from flooding raise the water in the river, which increases flood risk on another community that perhaps can't afford a levee. Um, Slow water projects are distributed. Um, like we discussed, they are community facing or community engaged. And really they are acknowledging water's agency and, and seeking to collaborate with water. Ooh, I love that. Um, you know, listening to water, you know, where does water go? Yeah. And thank you for that. Um, I wonder if you might be able to uh, consider possible overlap between all the reporting you've done and your investigations and this focus on slow water and sl the slow water movement um, with uh, Loretta's work that we've just learned about. Yeah, absolutely. Loretta's work is uh, definitely a, a facet of what I'm talking about within the, the urban sphere. And in fact, I have um, a chapter in my book that looks at China, and that one focuses on a very famous landscape architect uh, named Yu Kongxiong. And um, he is doing very similar work uh, to Loretta's work um, within cities in China and also beyond. I, I believe he's also uh, had meetings in Mexico City and uh, consulted with people there um, because Beijing, like Mexico City, uh, was also built on a lake <laughs> and is having similar problems with flooding and scarcity and subsidence, which is what happens when the land sinks because too much water is being pumped out. So there are a lot of parallels there. Um, so yeah, landscape architects are definitely um, one type of, uh, as I call them, water detectives. and. Uh, other people are engineers, ecologists, biologists, um, urban planners, and all of these people are approaching water with curiosity 
And Loretta referred to that in her work, like one step of that is something called historical ecology. And the idea behind that is to try to understand what did water do in this place before we subverted it with our development? And oftentimes people make complex maps of like, you know, here were the wetlands and this is where the rivers and streams ran. And the idea behind that is, you know, my book is called Water Always Wins uh, because sooner or later it does. And oftentimes we see that the areas that are the first to flood are ones that were built on wetlands, for example. Um, so if you can understand where water traveled historically, you can understand where you might want to try to make space for it again. And I think people tend to think of cities as, um, you know, static, uh, like it's all built up. How could we possibly find space for water? But in fact, um, there's a lot of turnover that happens within cities. And so if a city can make an urban plan based on this historical ecology, they can identify places that like, okay, if that building is being torn down, maybe we're going to restore that wetland instead of authorize another building there. And, you know, people think, oh, well, we'll lose money doing that. Well, in fact, you're lessening flood risk elsewhere for other properties. And there have been some really interesting economic analyses that look at like how quickly a community recovers that cost from avoided damages. And it can be um, as little as five years. So um, yeah, definitely uh, Loretta's work is, is one, uh, is, is definitely a key example within the urban sphere. There are also um, rural applications um, both in, uh, you know, floodplains, mountains, et cetera, uh, people who are doing related work throughout the watershed. Thank you. You may have just answered this, but I want to expand a little bit. So um, how do approaches such as Loretta's or the examples that you've shared um, affect not just cities, but also the surrounding areas and ecosystems? Right. So um, agriculture is another big way that we have interfered with the water cycle. And often that has meant um, planting on floodplains. There are also cities built on floodplains. But um, when you prevent the water from getting onto the floodplain, you prevent that natural recharge that happens. So that makes your uh, streams more likely to run dry in the summer. Uh, you also interfere with a lot of important facets of aquatic life. Um, so there's a lot of important food and chemical and pollution processing that happens on floodplains and also in this hidden river under the river called the hyperreic zone. Um, that's kind of a complicated topic, but there are many complex systems that water is involved with. Um, and, you know, Projects outside of the city can also benefit the city. Um, Pamplona, Spain was flooding increasingly often, and there was an agricultural area on a floodplain um, above the city uh, that was sort of marginal farmland. And so, you know, they bought out the farmer and returned that land to water via its floodplain. And that has, you know, that absorbs the water, that slows the water. And so you have um, a lower flood peak and it has greatly decreased uh, flooding within the city. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of marginal farmland around the world that um, could potentially be used for this. So it's really about finding opportunities. And it's also kind of um, 
you know, we have a very scarcity mindset uh, approach when it comes to water in, uh, in our mainstream culture. But um, other cultures around the world instead think of water as a relative or a friend, which engenders thinking about those complex systems and how to work with them. And one example is if you set back a levee, if you move it to the back edge of the floodplain and you allow that floodplain to be part of the river again, and your fish are able to, your young fish are able to spend time on the floodplain, there's much, much more food there than there is within the narrow channel of the river. So the fish get fat and healthy and they're much stronger for their, their travels through the river. Uh, and then that water, that same water moves more slowly into the river and is therefore available longer into the dry season. And so, you know, in California, we have this fish versus farmers argument, but in fact, the same water can benefit both the fish and the farmers. Thank you, Erica. So based off of what you just shared, I wonder in your work, um, you have called those working, as you alluded to earlier, in the slow water movement, water detectives, right? Uh, and so I'm wondering if you, um, how you see architects like Loretta fitting into the water movement, perhaps, and, and other groups? Yeah, well, as, as I said, um, Loretta definitely sounds like a water detective to me. And uh, landscape architects, in fact, uh, often do play that role. I think uh, you know, they are thinking much more actively about the various facets of the, the lands that we live in and how to optimize those in various ways. And so I've, I actually, in my research, have come across a number of landscape architects who are working in this way. I think they often uh, lead city planners by, by showing them um, that these are opportunities and, and that we could be doing things differently. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think uh, many landscape architects are really uh, on the leading edge uh, when it comes to the urban environment. I'm also wondering uh, if there's a type of water detective out there who you think might need more support. You mentioned water as a relative or in other words, water is kin. Uh, and the relationships that we hold with water. So I wonder if there's other groups or that need support or attention or, or resources beyond what they're working on. Definitely. Um, I can think of two right off the top of my head. One is uh, our furry friend, the beaver. And, uh, you know, beavers are native to North America. Um, and there's a different species of beaver that are native to Eurasia. And they do very similar things uh, in terms of, uh, you know, they often build dams and create ponds that slow water. Um, and particularly with climate change as snowpack and glaciers melt, you know, those uh, water sources have typically supplied water into the dry season, but as they disappear, um, you know, beavers can provide a similar service. Uh, there was one study in Washington state that found that uh, relocated beavers stored 75 times more water per 100 meters of stream than an area without beavers. That's both above and below ground. Um, you know, beavers were killed by trappers. Uh, and so when settlers came to North America, the beavers were already gone. And so 
the landscape was much drier than it would have been naturally. And that uh, water storage played a really important role in hydrating the landscape, um, both to supply streams and rivers in summer. And then there's also a really important part of the water cycle, which is plants that release water into the atmosphere. It's called transpiration and that generates rain. And when you have a healthy water table, the plants can reach the water, they can release the water that generates rain. And then there's something called moisture hopping, which is if you have a connected expanse of plants, they sort of pass the rain along. But if you have deforestation, you break that cycle and that increases desertification and, and drought. Um, so it's just another aspect of how these complex natural systems uh, can help to restore uh, the water cycle and watersheds and, and also reduce wildfire. Um, so that's one group, our, our friends, the beavers. Um, there are uh, indigenous peoples in the Andes Mountains of Peru. Uh, there is, uh, the, that are um, continuing practices that are 1400 years old for uh, slowing the water and moving it underground and making it available later in the year. There's another practice of a, a high altitude peatland called Bofadales or cushion bog, uh, where people have a traditional practice of, of, you know, kind of cutting the land to expand the Bofadales um, to absorb more water and make it available for their animals and for themselves. Um, and so both of these practices are now getting more funding because the government of Peru has made it a national policy that water utility, part of water utility bills will go to protect these systems and to protect and expand these practices. Um, and that's really important because in Peru, like many places in the world, much of the water comes from the mountains um, and supports people uh, down in the drylands. Um, and then there are microbes and other really tiny critters that are very important parts of the, the water cycle. And um, it, like in this hyperreic zone, which means underflow in Greek uh, that runs under the river, uh, there's all kinds of important uh, biological and chemical processing that happens there. And so when we think of water just as you know, this water feature on the surface, we're ignoring the complexity of that system. And if we can make space for that system to be healthy and to function, the system will maintain itself much better, which is less expensive and provides many more of the ecosystem services that we rely on. Thank you, Erica. So I'm gonna open up the conversation to have both of you be in conversation with each other. Uh, and so, Erica, I thought it might be a great opportunity uh, with your day-to-day -day working as a journalist, if you might want to ask Loretta a question. Sure. Um, yeah, so I had the opportunity to visit Mexico City just before the pandemic. And it's just, it's such an amazing city. I love the, the energy and the art and the culture. Um, it's just a really, really cool place. Um, I was able to visit, um, and I'm really sorry, I've forgotten the name, but the, the wetlands that are not too far outside the city that were, um, traditional and people grow crops there and people now go there for, to see birds and to party with their family on boats. Um, and it's my understanding that those wetlands 
are part of the, the remnants of the historical system where, you know, the Aztecs lived more on top of the water. Um, so could you talk a little bit about those? It, it, am I correct about that history? And is there any movement to, to try to expand that or to expand that concept or principle, at least within the modern city? Sure, thank you for the question, and I love it. Um, it's called Xochimilco, the area you're talking about. Thank you, yes. And and uh, this unit, um, this, let's say, agricultural unit, it's called Chinampa, and it's like a water garden, uh, like a land infill in a water body, um, a basket formed with tree trunks, and then filled with water from the bottom of the lake, which is a very good soil because it, it has all the minerals that stay due to the closed basin, the endorheic. Now, now that are, we are talking in Greek ter terms, uh, <laughs> the, the water that accumulates in the center of the lake. And with that soil, they filled these baskets, um, which were long and slender. That was important because they... They had the measure of a human so that they could um, do the harvesting by hand. So it, it's actually pretty beautiful as a pattern because they are all these slender and long uh, pieces of land separated by canals of different thicknesses. So they had the very slender canals made for a very small sort of barge or boat or canoe that was only there to pick up the crops. Then the a bit wider canals were more were more like traveling canals, and then the very large ones that were definitely made to to move people to move goods outside of the area of Chinampas. So this uh, this system was actually there like thousands of years before the Aztecs. It's uh, the way in which people from the south of the basin, which were the first inhabitants of the basin, but also from the very north, and th th there's uh, some vestiges of this sort of uh, chinampas in the north, how they dealt with the, with the lake. So they weren't living on top of the lake, but they were harvesting the lake somehow. And they lived on the hardland, on the riverside or lakeside. So when the Aztecs arrived, in 1325, I think they they were able to observe how people lived around the lake because all the all the smaller towns were settled al around the lake, and these guys were the newcomers, and no one obviously wanted them to establish in their land, so they sent them to the center of the lake, and that's where they built the Nochtitlan and the entire Mexica Empire. So, but they were very good in learning. So they learned how the the people from Xochimilco dealt with the lake and how they harvested, and they took that strategy in order to build the city, the the Tenochtitlan, and even pushed it farther away because they were able also to build infrastructure that were also like these uh, many layered infrastructures that they were not only um, dam walls, but they were also highways or, or not highways but um, path ways let's say because they, they worked as, as uh, avenues no very large boulevards that connected the central island with the um, lakeside and then even aqueducts and also um 
gardens. No? So, so the way in which they somehow um, powered the entire idea of the Chinampa became like the, their cos cosmo cosmology, let's say. No? They, they understood the basin as a garden itself, which I, I think is fantastic because they describe the, the Mexica garden as a place with water at the center and somehow divided in a cross uh, diagram with places to have animals, places to have crops, places to have trees and places to have flowers. And somehow that's the, the same way in which they designed the entire city of Tenochtitlan, enclosed by the, by the walls or the natural walls, which were the mountains, the volcanoes. So it's really interesting to see how from the little idea of a garden, that can be expanded to the idea of an entire uh, inhabiting realm, which we call today city, but for them it was more like the the their environment, right? Like their entire environment of living. Okay, cool. Yeah, it kind of, so I was able to visit the Mesopotamian marshes of Iraq uh, a few years ago, where there are marsh dwellers who they do actually live on these islands um, that are built of reeds, the Phragmites that have built up over generations. And this is like a 9,000 year old culture that actually led to the Sumerian culture about 6,000 years ago. Uh, but the marsh dwellers have continued their lifestyle. And there have been many irrigated cultures that have come and gone in the intervening years. Uh, and when they go, their infrastructure breaks down, the water retakes the marshes and the marsh dwellers remain. Um, so there's some interesting similarities. I like that both cultures were finding ways to live with water uh, rather than trying to dramatically control and change it. Although it sounds like the Aztecs were moving a little bit more in that direction. Um, I wonder like in the projects that are happening in Mexico City today in terms of um, you know finding space for water. Uh, is there any, any thought about expanding these areas or mimicking them to some degree as, as kind of a, a guidance? Yeah, no, that's an, uh, and I forgot to answer that because you somehow asked it also before, I'm sorry <laughs> that I didn't take upon that, but yeah, yes, in a way, because the problem right now is that there is no more lake. So there is still an area of Xochimilco and Tlahuac that has been preserved. And there's an important movement to keep that going. So to really keep uh, the, the chinampas that are there still there, even though it's a fight all the time, because it's right now it's watered with water from a water treatment plant. So somehow the city has been so hardly infrastructured that water doesn't arrive to the lake anymore only when there's heavy rain, but as it's so twisted now, it floods and it's it's like somehow very complicated. The projects that um, have been worked on uh, like maybe since the 2000s, there are several people working on this sort of uh, water solutions uh, through landscape, have a lot of trouble on working on chinampas again. And that's because chinampas need to be built on the lakes, on the lake bed. And there is few lake bed remaining. What remains of Xochimilco is uh, called 
ejidal or te territorio ejidal. So it belongs to a group of people, to the ejido. And these people are very jealous of their land. Somehow they, somehow they are the inherit inheritance of the chinampas. Several of them still cultivate chinampas and they are some of the most interested people on um, taking care of the chinampas. But I think there needs to be like one more generation to come in order for the ejidatarios to really reveal chinampas. I, I think that will happen, but in the future, like in the near future, probably. Other projects that have been built regarding water have a hard time on reconstructing chinampas because it's it's very specific, like the way in which you build it and how you can build it. But what we have been doing is rather thinking and understanding the precise landscape where you are going to be building. So when it's about hillside, we work, for example, on building terraces that are able to infiltrate water to the subsoil. When we work uh, more on flatland that was not a lake, uh, then we can build more on retaining water on the site, maybe controlling dust, because that's an, another very big issue that there is a lot of dust, um, because some of the land was lake and uh, very low vegetation. So now that it's been cleared to build housing, let's say to build uh, social housing, you have all this very fine dust that, that makes it very hard for living. So somehow how to control dust by designing the landscape uh, or uh, changing the top part of the soil without it needing to be watered, because that's the other thing. We cannot do like grass surfaces in Mexico City because water is very inconstant. So probably what we do is cover it with this gravel called tesontle, which is a volcanic gravel that stops the, the um, dust from, from being elevated, which also makes a good soil for retaining water, for example. So it's are there native? Sorry, are there native plants uh, who can live in that substrate uh, and deal with the the big extremes and water availability? That, not not really. There was there are the plants that can live in the in the humid landscape, like where there's still a bit of water, and those are very specific plants because the 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 lake is um, has brackish water, so it's not easy for any plants to, to grow there. But still there, there's like a variety there. And then for the other sites, like the ones that are these very fine dust um, that comes from clay, from clay grounds, let's say, you can grow some sort of trees, you can grow some bushes, but what we need to be very careful about is who maintains that. Because in there's never there's never budget for maintaining public space. So there's always this thing of uh, somehow balancing who will maintain the public space, what type of plants can grow there, how do we give shade, how do we control dust, how do we harvest water, or how do we con retain water at least if there is not enough budget to build cisterns, how are we able to contain water in that place uh, for, as, as Kongyan, uh, you does the tourscape uh, chief like somehow making these places uh, sponge spaces to retain water and then let it go slowly after the storm yeah I want to ask Loretta if you have a question you'd like to ask Erica yeah no and and I'm so glad that uh, we can talk Erica yeah me too. and it's more about um, 
water culture because we even though we, we we work a lot on water but what we like at the end the conclusion of all the research we did was that if there is no water culture if people are not sensitive to how water works or do have do not have this contact with with water it's a lost battle because we will never be able to really um understand the cycle and understand that we are part of the cycle and that we live because of the cycle so my my question and maybe it's a somehow a dumb question but i think it's important to ask it how as as a journalist and how do you think that or how do you think that we need to communicate water in order to create water culture like to make that a popular topic <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Um, and uh, yeah, I, it's one that I've been struggling with for a long time. I mean, it's why I wrote my book, because I had been writing a series of journalism articles about working with nature to better manage water. Um, and I just felt like they weren't enough in the popular awareness, uh, both with decision makers and the general public. And, you know, one response that I hear a lot is like, well, that's nice, you know, but it can't be a significant part of the solution. And I think, you know, that's a complete misunderstanding of, of how it works and of scale and of the need to like fundamentally change our culture of how we relate to water. So you know, sure, daylighting a short stretch of creek within a city is a nice water feature. It's a, it's a park. Um, but, you know, you need many of these scattered throughout. And the good news about that is that it's scalable, right? Every little bit helps and every additional part you do uh, helps more. And I think when you have those first projects, that is really, really important because it's showing people actively what this solution can look like. And, you know, oftentimes um, these areas can be more attractive and more livable than, say, a dam, for example, because maybe it's a, a semi park space in some capacity. And so, you know, people love nature and they love uh, being around it, there's all kinds of studies showing increased health, uh, both mental and physical from exposure to nature. Um, so, you know, that's one argument is like that these are ways to make our city more livable, um, more attractive. And, but there's some education that's required in that too, because, you know, a dam is static. It, it looks kind of the same. I mean, the water level comes and goes, but these landscapes are changeable, right? Plants live and die. Sometimes the area is muddy. Um, and there are ways that a landscape designer can uh, kind of unify these changes. Like one thing that Yu Xiong does is he often has these walkways throughout the landscape, maybe kind of soaring over the wetlands. So you know, whether it's wet or muddy or dry, you can still enter the landscape and get close to it and see that change. And, you know, I think signage is really important. Like um, people come to these public spaces and you have a sign that is describing what water is doing in this space and why you've designed it this way, what benefits you're offering the community by having this space. And 
you know, a lot of people do read those signs. So that is um, kind of one, when I talk about community engagement um, with water, you know, there are these communities that are hands-on and actively managing, but this is a way uh, that you can reach more people in kind of like a more, uh, you know, a way that sort of like meets our modern <laughs> culture where, where it's at. Um, but there are also a lot of incentives that you can offer homeowners and landowners to change practices on their own properties. And that involves a lot more people in understanding these concepts. Um, one example is Phoenix. Uh, you know, Phoenix had a ton of lawns that had people who had moved there from the Midwest and thought they should recreate the yards that they had back home. And, uh, you know, they had moved there for the dry air and they actually changed the climate because of all the, <laughs> the evaporation, making it more humid. And so about 20 years ago, uh, the city started offering people incentives to get rid of lawns, which use about 60% of residential water on average and are basically ecological deserts. You know, they're a monospecies. They require a ton of pesticides and fertilizers that run off into the water. Um, and so, you know, people started planting native plants. Um, and now within two decades, you have this culture if that Phoenix that has really changed where people are like, wow, you know, we moved here because we love the desert and we want to live in the desert. And look, we have a palo verde tree. We have a saguaro right here on our property. And now there's like a bobcat that's coming to drink and a, a roadrunner, you know. And so that kind of pride of place is something that I think um, we can tap into to try to increase people's awareness about water and how it functions. I, I love that pride of place. It's, it's somehow all about that, no? how, how you become pride, proud of what you have or, or how you are able to somehow show the, the character of the city and even of yourself through, through place, through territory, obviously, through water, no? I think historical ecology can be another way that really engages people's information. I mean, sorry, people's imagination. Because I think people are really curious about the place that they live and what it was like in the past. And so, you know, that's another opportunity to explain like, oh, this is what was here before. And, you know, now we have this and now we're having this problem. So, you know, maybe we could do this, this other thing. I think that's a lovely place to wrap up. Um, I know there's a lot of energy behind this conversation still, and I hope that the people listening are going to look into both of yours work. And I'm really excited to have been able to help you to connect and just to promote and support the work that you two are doing. Um, but yeah, we've talked a lot. We talked a lot about how cities, you know, are built on water bodies and just keep growing and growing, how so much of the world is covered in pavement, um, why we need slow water phases, um, water detectives like Loretta and the furry beaver. Um, and so thank you so much for both of you for um, coming on to our show today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It was a great, great conversation. Yeah, thank you. Me too. So happy to, to talk to you both, to Dakota and Judy, and obviously to know more about Erica um, firsthand. <laughs>